Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. And in this week's episode, I'm joined by Pape Group's CEO, Jordan Pape. Pape Group is an end-to-end solutions provider within the capital equipment industry founded way back in 1938. Their West Coast footprint now includes about 130 locations and over 3,500 employees, predominantly focused in Oregon, Washington, California, and Montana, but also have locations in Hawaii and Alaska as well. As its fourth-generation leader, Jordan discusses the dynamics of running a family business, as well as navigating the transitions of ownership and strategy throughout the decades. Throughout today's episode, we cover the topic of capital allocation decisions, strategy, culture, people management, and preparing the next generation for the challenges and complexities of wealth. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode with Jordan Pape of the Pape Group. Jordan Pape, welcome to Success at Last. Excited to have you. Thank you. It's good to be on your uh, podcast. This is exciting. Who knew? When uh, when I met you, what, 16 years ago, 16 years ago, we we weren't thinking podcasts. I didn't think podcasts existed. And here we are. I'm pretty sure when we first met, one of my initial memories of you is coming from an MBA class, watching you on a Saturday as you are jumping up and down on the bench for the team, completely losing your mind, cheering the team to victory. And then coming into the classroom and attempting to keep up with guys like you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's exactly <laughs> how that went, I think. Football on Saturday and accounting classes on Monday. The joys of a master's program, the MBA. It was good. But, so actually, let's start there. You know, when, we, when we met 16 years ago, there were a lot of dreams, right? Professionally, we were taking time away from the work world, so to speak, and uh, getting ready to launch launch careers, launch families, and probably learned a lot over that period of time. But you know, one of the dreams that, that I remember inventorying during our time together was a dream that you had to, to one day be the leader of your family's business. And you fast forward 16 years ahead, you, you are. So I guess, talk to me about kind of your current role today. And, and I'd kind of want to know To what extent is the dream different than what you would have anticipated? Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack in that. So the current role in many ways is exactly what I would have expected. I've spent my entire life surrounded by a lot of the same leaders who are still running the operations of our organization. And I had the highest respect for them. I was always taught to have the highest respect for them. And for good reason, because I am fortunate to be in what I consider to be the Yankees of the heavy equipment world. When people would ask me, 
you know, what it's like to all of a sudden step into this role. My first reaction was, it's like being the general manager for, for the Yankees. Provide the hot dogs, make sure the tickets are sold. But at the end of the day, the team that's winning it on the field are our members that are out there customer facing every day. So that takes a lot of the complexity away. So I guess lay the land uh, landscape out for, for our, our listeners. Like, so Pape Machinery has an incredible legacy, eight plus decades of, of impacting the, the Northwest business community and presently has a, has a sizable footprint. So I guess let's just talk about size and scope of the business operation, you know, the, the Yankees of, of heavy equipment. Yeah. So right now we have five primary divisions. You've got Pape Material Handling, which is the Heister Yale dealership primarily, also does aerial rental and ditch witch. We have a division in there also called Engineered Products that does racking and shelving design all over North America. We have Pape Machinery that has two divisions inside of it, the construction and forestry, which would go head to head against Caterpillar and Komatsu and the agriculture and turf, which goes head-to-head against Case, New Holland, Kubota, those entities. And then we have the Kenworth division, which is the class six, seven, and eight Kenworth dealerships up and down the West Coast. Our primary dealership footprint is in Oregon, Washington, and California, but we also spread out into Hawaii, Alaska, Montana, parts of Idaho, Nevada, and Arizona. What's headcount up to? Just over 3,500. And uh, run out of Eugene, basically. The head shed still didn't still in Eugene, or is it different by uh, by division? Yeah, we're still we're still headquartered in Eugene. All of Central Services are in Eugene, and, and the primary structure of our model is that we've got uh, Central Services for marketing, HR, accounting, and finance, IT, credit. Those are primarily housed here in Eugene, servicing over 120 locations up and down the West Coast. Our goal is to make sure that out in the field, our guys and men and women are focused as much as humanly possible on the customer and the customer's experience. So we try and take the pieces off their shoulder, including, you know, central parts fulfillment, credit, accounting, all of those things that could otherwise distract them in the field with backhouse operations. So you're currently CEO? Yep. Am I misremembering? Was that a dream or an aspiration 16 years ago when we first met in an MBA class? Yeah, I think in in some ways, when you grow up in a family business and your parent, father or mother are the head of the organization, you end up, if you have a great relationship with them, you idolize them and, and you want to do a lot of the things that they did. And you want to provide a similar lifestyle for your family uh, that was provided to you. And so I think I had a lot of that wrapped up in me in my 20s when you and I got to know each other well. And now, many years later, that, that's in a lot of ways true. But the organization has also grown to a point where, you know, I have another brother who's still in the organization and, and one brother who's not in the organization. And my mother, my father's passed away, as you know, and my mother's also in the organization. And there is a lot of elbow room for our family to work without people feeling like they're stepping on each other's toes, right? You have the freedom and flexibility to try and grow your organization. My brother, Ryan, who's been an absolutely amazing partner in business and in family, he runs our John Deere Ag Division and is growing that. And on a day-by-day basis, we might not cross paths. 
and certainly, you know, don't have to necessarily cross paths any more than I would with any of our other non-family presidents of the various divisions. And so in that way, I think this role has some things that I thought it would and some things that, that I think I would have been fine had it worked out differently, just because there's plenty of space to maneuver. We'll go with a kind of a cliche question. I guess if you got some time with, with Jordan Pape and our, our business valuations class 16 years ago, what wisdom would you have shared with him in that moment in time, knowing what you know today over the, the journey that you've, you've traveled? I would say the wisdom was probably passed to me by my father. I don't know that I would have too much more to add. And, and that's really that your credibility and your reputation will mean everything. You will have certain skill sets and everybody has different skills, you know, on a spectrum. You know, my brother and I joke back and forth. He's very social and has great relationships and deep relationships. I'm a little bit more cerebral, but that isn't to say that, that we can't trade places, right? Yeah. So in the context of how the pieces fit together in a family business, your credibility, where you stand, your ability to work with others and be relied upon are critical, especially in a family business, because you will move up through the ranks as a family member faster than you would if you were not a family member. And so developing that trust, that relationship with people is critical. Trust is tough. I mean, there's consultants out there like Patrick Lencioni that, that have sold tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of books just talking about the fundamental nature of trust and how vulnerability-based trust is different than predictive trust. I mean, is there any insight that you have to, to trust if, if organizational health is kind of one of the strategic levers that most businesses struggle to, to pull? What's worked well for, for you managing the complexity of different service lines, different divisions, and then even the family nature, knowing the critical role that trust plays in your long-term success? Yeah, Trust is funny. Most people confuse trust with the ability to believe that somebody is going to do what you want them to do, right? When you think in terms of of friendship and trust, you often think in terms of, is this person going to behave the way I want them to behave so that I can feel comfortable in their presence? It's very different in a business world, in a professional world. Trust is less about somebody doing what you want them to do And a lot more about understanding what somebody's going to do, being able to predict their behavior, even if you can predict that they're regularly going to do the opposite of what you really want them to do, right? And sometimes that's very good. So I think getting comfortable with learning that trust is about being authentic, trust is being predictable. Trust is letting people know how you're going to behave and how you're going to react, even if it's not what they want from you, is really the key over time. I want to jump into the legacy that, that you're stewarding right now. Now, you're fourth generation. Mm-hmm. So I guess if we, we just look at the empirical evidence, just looking at the numbers, that's a statistical improbability. It, it can happen. It just generally doesn't. Like most businesses can't make it past multiple generations, let alone to the fourth and, and be in a position where the business is still healthy and prospering. I'm curious if you have any insights to that, because I think there's a variety of different challenges that a business that lasts for four 
four generations is needing to overcome, right? There's the intergenerational dynamics that's incredibly difficult to overcome in addition to just the the business changes. Like, I mean, competition and kind of this creative destruction that uh, is a byproduct of, of global capitalism. Money will move to where it's treated best. And so it's difficult for business to stay on the right side of that for for eight decades. I guess, talk to me a little bit about what you think maybe some of the secret sauce is to how Pape has been able to prosper for, for 80 plus years. Partly by luck, partly by design, we have, as I mentioned, three family members that are in the business. My mother, my eldest brother, and I. So we're a fourth generation business that really operates like a second generation business. And that removes a ton of complexity because you don't, you don't have, you know, the estranged cousin in another continent that you have to check in with before you make a business decision. You don't have an aunt or a second uncle that has a divergent viewpoint on how to use capital. We're very closely held and we spend a lot of time just talking amongst the three of us on what the immediate goal is, right? We can still have our slight divergent paths that we would like to see, but on the whole, the overall mission, we are fairly rock steady in the decisions that we make. In fact, I can't remember the last time we even had to really have a formal vote, you know, where somebody lost, quote unquote, a vote. Yeah. I'm excited by your answer. So let's spend a little time to unpack that. So I believe that your legacy and your wealth is only as secure as the family is united. And you just said that there's no daylight between you, your your brother and your mother on, on most of these decisions. And you also talked about not having distant one-off relatives with, you know, essentially these stakeholders in the business that aren't united around a shared purpose, mission, vision, values, and such. You credited luck, which I appreciate your humility. That seems to be a common denominator amongst our more successful clients. But <laughs> let's pretend like by chance, it's not luck alone. To what extent is not having random one-offs distant family members by design versus by accident? So the design portion is, you know, we have a family rule now that you can't be an owner in the family business unless you're working in the family business. So there are parts of it that we picked up over time. So you have to have an employed stake in the company in order to be an owner in the company. And that is purely to avoid the conflict of the family member who is interested in the wealth, but not connected to the mission and values of the company. The, you know, the opportunity for those family members are oftentimes that there are other wealth transfer goals that y- you can share with those family members that are different than shares in a company. It's ultimately not fair to the management and other members of the team that are non-family members to have divergent pulls on capital that take away from the strategic goals that the members inside our company, non-family members, are pushing towards. We could spend a semester unpacking that topic. Before we get to the strategy iterations and, and how you've maintained competitiveness over eight decades, one of the things that I think is interesting about wealth, particularly within a family business setting, is sometimes a wealth creator can begin to implement plans 
and create such a vision that's so bold that rather than actually creating choices, it creates a black hole of silence and can actually silence the generations to follow. And it's a smothering thing versus a liberating thing. I guess it seems to me as though you and your family and the business are flourishing. And my experiences with Randy while he was here were, were wonderful. He seemed like a neat guy. I guess, how do you, how do you manage that as, a, as now kind of the patriarch of the business and a patriarch within your own family of, of setting vision for the business and for your family, but at the same time, allowing your children the flexibility and autonomy to kind of lean into and become who, you know, who they want to become? My father was very funny in that he was absolutely a pro-democracy capitalist, but he would privately joke that there is no better form of leadership than a benevolent dictator. So he was more than happy to provide the leadership in a vacuum that you may have mentioned in a kind way, in a thoughtful way, in a visionary way. But his form of leadership was to look himself in the mirror decide the direction the company needed to go, and then plow full steam that direction with everything he could rallying the team to move forward. The the benefit that he had was his later in his life, he was the only shareholder in his generation. So he he could afford to do that. He could afford to operate almost as if he was the, you know, sole proprietor of the business. He had, for a short time, he had his father still alive, and then his mother as shareholders, and they provided him the flexibility as long as he was doing a good job running the business. He did a fabulous job. They provided him the flexibility for a lot of decision-making. In our current ownership structure, I I am really blessed that my mother is, is very much the same way in her generation, you know, providing a hand on the rudder of the ship, so to speak, where as long as the business is performing and the family members that are engaged in the business are working well together, then she's more than happy to step back and allow our, our generation to make decisions and try and fulfill our dreams. And so then it's a lot of communication back and forth with my brother and I. We're the, really the first ones in decades to be making decisions as brothers in an organization. And I am super fortunate that he and I share a common goal of just trying to create the best customer-centric heavy equipment dealership in the West. That's awesome. Now, I'm, I'm positive that there's some pretty wonderful stories that get told within the organization, kind of these legacy stories of one leader to another. But if I remember, your father made a pretty big decision in terms of at that moment in time, kind of before they began to expand into different divisions, the the decision in terms of like the the dealership partnership, you guys were once a a Caterpillar dealer and then became a a John Deere dealer. And that's like going from the Red Sox to the Yankees, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That was a big, bold move, but he did it intelligently. The only thing that I would say that was maybe a little bit different would be, it would be more akin to going from being the national championship of division two football into playing division one a right and that's not to say caterpillar's division two but in our territory for caterpillar we were in a very small territory southern oregon predominantly forestry based 
we were strong for where we were, but our market opportunity was not Division One A ball. By switching over to John Deere, we moved from a market where our largest metro area was Eugene, Oregon, to picking up Seattle, San Francisco, Sacramento, Portland, all the way down to Stockton. So to be able to play in that large of a league, to use that terminology, was a game changer for us. And what we knew was that John Deere, while not being number one in construction equipment at the time, they were number one in agricultural equipment. They were a lifestyle brand where anyone on the farm side who raises the flag wants to raise the flag and put on the green hat, right? So to move over to John Deere, for us, it was a big step emotionally because you know, the family's identity was tied into Pape Cat. But from a business perspective, the larger opportunity with an amazing partner in John Deere who knows what it's like to win at the highest levels worldwide, that was a step in the right direction for us. It's interesting. I, I vividly remember a conversation with Randy when he, he talked about a critical moment of deciding kind of why does the company exist and revisiting that that question and determining that it it was going to be a cat, a capital equipment dealer versus just a, a dealer of a specific brand and then that that opened up a palette of opportunities for what what you could do to serve the same customer likely across a variety of different channels so in your current role you spend a lot of time in strategy in trying to vision where the where the company is going, uh, I guess in practice, kind of what role does does strategy play today in, in your decisions, and in how do you figure strategy out? It's kind of like how, how have you worked on that muscle to figure out where the company needs to go long term? They say necessity is the mother of invention, right? And yeah. so when we again going back to our dealership footprint, when we were a Caterpillar dealer. In Southern Oregon, our primary market was forestry. So forestry markets would take off, lumber prices being up, and then lumber prices would crash, the forestry market would crash, we would have to terminate our members who we believe we have a responsibility to their lives and their families. And that didn't feel good. So when my father analyzed it and said, look, we, we got to figure out what we're doing in this market in the 90s when the forests in Oregon were really shutting down because of the spotted owl issue. He decided, okay, we're either going to have to exit this business because it's just not sustainable in the market that we were in, or we've got to do what, what you referred to, redefine ourselves as a capital equipment dealer. So that's what he did. And he decided to pick up like brands, first with Heister, then with Ditchwich, then we switched from Cat to John Deere and picked up Kenworth. And then we got into the John Deere egg side of the business. His model was really all about diversification so that we could be a stronger business to our customers and to our members. We could, going back to our conversation about trust, be relied upon. People would know how we could react because we had the capital strength to weather the various storms and we had the diversification to buffet extreme spikes and troughs in any particular market. So that was his mindset. The legacy that he then left to us after getting involved with several of these different markets was what our generation has picked up and decided to run with. And that's to be the end-to-end -end mobile capital equipment solution in the West. It's a horrible thing to try and put on a t-shirt. It is like the worst marketing terminology in the world. But what we try to say when we talk about this 
I'll give you an example. If you go back into our roots in forestry, we want to sell you the equipment to harvest the tree. We want to sell you the log loader to load the logs onto the back of a Kenworth truck. We want to sell you the Kenworth truck that takes it to the mill where the Heister and Yale forklifts are moving the lumber around the mill, comes out the other side onto the back of a Kenworth truck, headed to a housing development where John Deere construction and forestry equipment and Ditchwich are putting in the roadways, utilities, and pads to build a house. So I said that fast, but essentially by supporting our customers from natural resource to home construction, we help provide homes to families in the West. And that's something we can rally behind. The same thing with food production, right? At each step along the way, we can provide the support to our customers so that they can bring goods from farm to market. So what we're ultimately trying to do is different than just about anybody else, peer or competitor in North America, which is to stitch together OEM relationships, multiple OEM relationships that give us that end-to-end solution for our customers. That's awesome. I'm wrapping my head around that. To what extent do you have multiple different OEM relationships that are serving the same customer, the same Pape customer? Meaning I might have a tractor, but I also might have a forklift. To what extent are there multiple different divisions serving the same customer or is it is it more kind of vertically integrated within a, a greater industry? It's very significant. And it would be a lot like, you know, your background in accounting or like you would imagine a banker, if you're coming from that line of work, you know, you think of your banker, they want to sell you a credit solution. They want to sell you a treasury solution. Yeah. You know, they want you to get your P card through them, the whole thing, right? So our customer base is very similar. There are very few farmers who don't own tractors, trucks, and forklifts. There are very few people in logging that don't own logging equipment and trucks. Very few people in wholesale distribution that don't have interaction between forklifts and trucks. So there's a lot of commonality with our customers. And and in the explanation that I gave you from the end-to-end, there aren't very many customers that go from end-to-end but there are a lot of customers who have more than one or two segments along that cycle. So we can support them up channel and down channel. What also becomes really important for us is that people make mistakes regularly. People are human and we make mistakes. The best learning opportunity for us is if we develop a solid enough relationship with our customers in any one or multiple divisions, and then we screw up, It isn't long before that customer picks up the phone and calls somebody in our organization that they feel close to and read them the absolute riot act about how we fell short of their expectations. That we're not the organization that they trust, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. Well, as soon as you get off the phone with that person, somebody in our organization is calling somebody else in the organization to tell them they better fix the problem because we don't want to lose that customer relationship. Now we can solve the issue. We can get back to the customer. The customer feels heard and understood. Customer feels that we care about them and their issue. And as we resolve that, we stitch a much tighter relationship. And it is so much tighter than when we were a standalone tractor dealer as a Caterpillar dealer. And somebody who was upset with us could just leave us and go to another organization, right? Yeah. Now, because they have multiple touch points with us, they're much less likely to believe they're much more likely to reach out to somebody who's going to listen to their problem if we've dropped the ball. 
and help them navigate a solution that works for everybody. I've got a couple of different questions that are ricocheting around in my head and I'm struggling to put put words to them. So what I think is is interesting about kind of the strategy and insightful is, as you said, we're stitching together uh, essentially this fabric of OEM relationships. I mean, you, you, you don't make the tractors, right? But you're part of the distribution channel for, for Deere and part of the service model. And because you, you do have this collection, this palette of services, this palette of products that can really meet and exceed client needs, it's a unique value proposition. How have you been able to, this is, I guess, two parts, acquire these brands and integrate them into your culture so that the, the fabric of that client experience is the same? And I guess, what strategies have enabled you to expand those current client relationships effectively so that kind of the collective wallet share, market share within those relationships is more meaningful? So one piece of it regularly amazes me because as, as I sit in my fourth generation seat with the decisions that were made in previous generations, it amazes me the opportunities that my family members who came before me took advantage of because some of this is just not really possible to do today. You would think that if somebody was going to roll up a network that we were talking about, and you already mentioned capital and capitalism having the advantage in the marketplace, you would think that that capital would roll out of major metro areas like Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles. But by sacrificing along the way today's cash for tomorrow's investment, the family members who came before me made opportunistic investments that put us in a position to stitch together what we're talking about today. For example, the Heister Yale investment when we got in and started what is now Pape Material Handling, that was a knock on the door from my grandfather's neighbor who said, hey, we have these factory-owned dealerships and we want to sell them off. Would you be interested? Now, as a cat dealer, he was actively discouraged from doing that. But when he and my father talked, they decided, hey, look, we're pigeonholed into a small market in Caterpillar. This would give us diversification. So they end up buying into a dealership network that was in competition with Caterpillar on the forklift side. And that severely damaged our relationship with Caterpillar, but it created a footprint that allowed us to continue to grow into later on. So then when we got together with John Deere, John Deere came forward and said, yeah, we can give you most of that footprint. If you perform, we'll help you get into the market first in Oregon and Washington. And if you prove to us you perform, we'll help you into Northern California. And they did. And we've had similar conversations then with Kenworth and with John Deere Ag. And all along the way, our manufacturers from Ditchwich to John Deere and Kenworth and Heister have helped us stitch together this vision of being able to operate in a contiguous footprint. Now the footprint changes and moves as we continue to grow in different divisions, but we're constantly, you know, like painting a bridge, going back and trying to infill areas where we don't have representation of one brand, but we do have representation of other brands. You hinted at something that I want to jump into a little bit more. You said you ben you're benefiting today. Today's cash for tomorrow's growth is a byproduct of the decisions and stewardship of the generations that have come before you. And I, again, I, pre I appreciate the humility there and I mean, the importance of kind of the, I guess, that stewardship across generations in any family business. But one of the most important decisions any CEO gets to make 
our capital allocation decisions. And I'd love to hear you think about or to put words to your thought process in terms of capital allocation, in terms of how much do you, you allocate and nurture the existing business versus, you know, use some of today's profits as kind of financial fertilizer to, to grow and accelerate some of the, the, whether it's service lines that you're, you're expanding into or regions that you're trying to pursue or strategic acquisitions. How do you think through capital allocation decisions in the midst of the innovator's dilemma? You got a great business today that probably is hungry for cash, but also opportunities outside of the core business. It's always just come down to priorities. And fortunately for us, we have not hit a significant conflict between the current operating business and, and growth opportunities that help the network switch together. But we certainly have had a lot of times where that then means that maybe a, a personal benefit, a dividend, something for the shareholders doesn't end up coming together. And, you know, you regularly, if, you, if you're keeping your eye focused on the right objectives, number one priority is, is the operating business. Number two I, a priority is how to grow in a way that maximizes the operating business. And so I would give you the example of in our growth model, as I've said, we've been very, very specific about growing within our footprint. So when somebody comes to us with an investment in Texas or Florida or Ohio, we're very shy about even pursuing that because we want to make sure that our capital is focused on that end-to-end solution in a common footprint, right? So those are our top priorities. Then behind that come other priorities where you can change your own allocation or debt structure, paying down debt, moving assets from lease to own, any of those types of things. And much further down the rung would be shareholders' personal wealth issues. Interesting. It seems to me that one of the unique competitive advantages that you'd have versus others that you'd bump into day-to-day in the marketplace from a competition perspective is this opportunity to coordinate a a client experience, a customer experience that's different than others. But I don't hear uh, people talk in like the privately held business about the customer experience very often. And so I I guess I'd, I'd love your thoughts how does Pape talk about, teach, and, and design the customer experience so, so that it does become a competitive advantage to the organization? In a dealership model, that's all we've got. As you pointed out earlier, we don't manufacture anything. So I can't have too much pride in any one particular product. And in fact, any manufacturer is made by engineers and humans, and there's failings in the products that are put forward. And so the best thing that we can offer as a dealer is to make the ownership experience the best it can be for our customers. That's why our slogan is, Pape keeps you moving, right? The idea that no matter what happens, we're going to give you the uptime you need to run a profitable business. Because if the machine's down, you're down. We don't want somebody's production line to all of a sudden have to come to a stop because the forklifts couldn't bring the product from warehouse to factory line. We don't want somebody to have to stop out in the woods four hours out into the woods on a log landing because the machine's down. So our entire focus is Pape keeps you moving and that that uptime by keeping you going, you'll be more efficient as a business and you'll be willing to pay us a premium. We don't have to be the lowest bidder on every deal 
in order to try and win your business. There's a value proposition in there that we are committed to. We deliver superior service and our customers reward us with loyalty that we've been very, very blessed with and grateful to the many customers up and down the West Coast for staying with us. So as you've expanded this footprint and added new OEM relationships, you've done some of it organically, you've done some of it inorganically through strategic M&A. You know, today there's 3,500 plus employees. How have you been able to shape and cultivate and maintain a culture that shares that same passion for, for the customer as the ownership group does? So our, our structure, if you think about the old classic management period, you know, the military style period, right? Top-down approach, the general at the top makes the decision, you know, that goes down to the colonels and then, you know, down to the foot soldiers, right? And, and whatever the top brass says goes. So if you can imagine that right side up triangle or pyramid, we believe in flipping the pyramid upside down, right? So that everything is built on supporting the supporting layer that supports the customers, So the territory managers and field service technicians that interface with the customer every day are empowered to make decisions to keep those customers moving and keep those customers happy. They're supported ultimately by a general manager out in their region who is empowered to treat their region like their very fine business. It has Pape on the door, but that general manager is expected to run it very much like it's their own own business because it is their market. And the market in Central California is very different than the market in Spokane. And a Pape sitting in Eugene isn't going to be able to effectively dictate to those leaders how to lead their people every day in market. So by taking those general managers and really focusing on a group of decision makers that share common values with our ownership structure, and we have a process twice a year that we go through with our general managers where they're interacting directly with us as the shareholders at a management level so that they understand what our priorities are and they're reporting out their results based on the priorities of the organization. They then take those objectives back to their people and they do everything they can to maximize their results. And A number one is going to be market share. If you're not selling machines, you're not going to keep the manufacturer happy and you're not going to put and install base out into the market that we can continue to service. And in the dealership world, our entire model is based on providing service, right? Not, you can't survive just selling machines. I'm looking over your left shoulder. Is that extreme ownership? Am I seeing that right? No? Where are we looking? Nope, clearly not. Nope, no. sorry. No, I thought I saw a book, Extreme Ownership. I was like, ooh, little Jocko, Willinick. It's wrong. I. It was too far away. <laughs> it looks like a familiar cover. But I mean, essentially, that's what you're talking about is an interesting combination of autonomy and accountability, you know, and, and essentially declaring a destination, but giving your team the tools uh, and flexibility to figure out how to get it done. Yeah, I, I think it really, it's the only way. And I, I'm a member of an organization called Young Presidents Organization. Uh, they've got a chapter in Oregon that my grandfather was a part of, my father was a part of, now my brother and I are part of. You have this inter- interesting interface between multi-generational family businesses and entrepreneurs. And oftentimes you'll get that entrepreneur who comes in and they're stressed out because they're trying to grow their business. They're trying to keep their family together. They're getting pulled in all these different directions. And you kind of have to 
sometimes have that long conversation to say, are you really, do you honestly believe you are the only human being qualified to make that decision? And of the profitability that you have coming out of your organization, that it's not worth investing in somebody else that you know and trust that can help make some of those decisions for you so that you can, you can take a step back and you can live a balanced life. And you can also trust others to make decisions that are important in the organization for you because they're going to have knowledge and experience that, that you don't have, and they'll probably make more effective decisions. I know our leadership team regularly makes decisions that I question or I find out about after the fact and I'm sort of shocked by, but they're the right, they're the right solutions. Yeah, you just hit the nail on the head. I think that's a, a challenging skill to develop, you know, that filter of all the things that you could do or you should do versus the things that you must do. Figuring out that filtration process, like how do I say no to good things so that I can say yes to great things? And because I mean, you're married, you've got multiple kids, they're growing up quickly, you have interests outside of work, I presume, right? And how do you get it all done when there's only 24 hours in the day? It really does require building a great team, but empowering them to make those decisions and getting those decisions off your desk. I mean, it sounds simple. I think it's hard to do, though. And those leaders deserve your support. And it's got to be a culture not only of delegation, because that can just sound like you're, you're putting work onto somebody else. It really does, to your earlier point, it has to be about empowerment. And you have to let them fail without worrying that they're going to lose their job. And frankly, as we've grown our business, going back to one of your earlier questions, one of the biggest challenges that we've had is when we make an acquisition and we assume the leadership team of another dealership enterprise, and that group, to use the expression from Shawshank Redemption, has been institutionalized. Yeah. They come to just rely on a key central figure to make their decisions for them. Those are the folks that you give them some time to try and make the turn. But if they've been too institutionalized, it is very difficult to happen. And so then you're going to have to let them find another opportunity and you're going to have to infill with the people who are ready to step in yeah. and execute and make decisions. That is one of the hardest things to do is to take somebody who has been loyal to a prior organization, but has not developed the skills to make the calls. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Jordan, the last few minutes that, uh, that we have together today, I kind of want to talk about flourishing. At the end of the day, you know, we go to work to create positive impact, positive disruption within our communities and within our clients' and customers' life. But hopefully, the byproduct of a successful business is some profits. And it's highly correlated that uh, a well-run business uh, is often correlated with wealth. But more wealth doesn't always translate to more flourishing. But I was curious what your take was in terms of the things that you're doing today as a father of, of some young kids to prepare your children, essentially the next generation for the complexities and opportunities of wealth. Well, we, historically, our family has been pretty hard on our own family. The wealth has certainly, it would be impossible for me to say, I have not had a very fortunate life and upbringing. At the same time, we don't milk the company. So the, the salary that you get is what you get from the company. You don't get additional giant piles on an annual basis or a quarterly basis that are 
that are coming out. And so, you know, just like anybody else who's working for a salary, your A number one focus is to do a good job and keep your job, keep your salary, right? And so that, that same lesson that everybody else teaches their kids is the same lesson we're teaching our kids is that you have to have all of the skills that are required to keep your job. And only by keeping your job in this family business, can you be a shareholder that comes with the benefits of, of ownership in a company, which has been a huge blessing in my life. It's a very fulfilling career. I don't know that too many people wake up and say, hey, what I want to do with the rest of my life is, is to be in XYZ industry. I know a lot of satisfied people who are working in industries that, that people don't think about every day. And they love it because they love working with the people that are in that industry, customers and the members of your team. So, you know, we try and teach our kids that, that have your dreams and you may choose not to be part of the family business. If you choose to be part of the family business, it's a wonderful lifestyle. The customer base that we have, they're real, they're authentic. They'll tell you exactly what they think because they need you to perform in order to in order to do their job and make a living and meet their timelines. And so from that perspective, it's a blessing to have a career where you're surrounded by just very real people. And that's what we try and teach our kids. Absolutely. I had a a question I don't think I've ever asked you before. When we met, you were just coming back from a season as an investment banker. Mm -hmm. Watching you use Excel, you made Excel do things I did not know it could do. I would be touching my mouse and uh, you'd never did. But <laughs> she's done it about 8% of the time that it took me to knock mine out. But I was curious to what extent that was uh, kind of something that the family had prioritized, getting some experiences outside of the business, or if that was just you trying to itch a scratch of maybe I like investment banking or maybe somewhere in between. A little bit of both now. So when I was coming up through the family business, The original rule in the family business was that you had to work outside of the family business in your teenage years before coming into the family business. You had to get a summer of volunteer work and two summers of working outside the business so that somebody else was teaching you the importance of showing up on time, being punctual, meeting your obligations, all of those pieces. And then you could come into the family business, grind and gain respect. But there was not necessarily an expectation after college that you had to work outside the family business. For me, as the third of three sons, it was more the sled dog analogy. If you're not the lead dog, the scenery never changes. So I thought, well, I, you know, I'm not sure if the family business is going to work out for me. And I'm, I'm not sure if I'm always just four years behind another brother, what opportunities I'll have inside the family business. So I thought, well, this, this might be a good alternative career path. And if it's not an alternative career path, it'll be a great learning experience. And it was. If ever there's an opportunity to learn humility, it's grinding it out in the wee hours of the morning, trying to get M&A analysis done. Yeah, no doubt. So is that more now institutionalized? Is that something that will be going forward, maybe part of your own children's journey, spending time outside of the family business beyond just kind of high school summer work? It is. We still require the next generation to work outside the family business in their teenage years. And now we have an expectation that after college, they'll do at least two years working outside the family businesses, learning other skills and what they want to bring into the family business than when and if they decide to join. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's, that seems to be something that the families that have seen do that 
it, it creates a different perspective, right? A change of pace, a change of place can often have a change of perspective and seeing something other than the family business seems to provide context and experience that's helpful on a lot of levels. You learn cultural pieces that you like, and you'll learn cultural pieces that you want to protect your family from uh, and your family business from. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I can say I learned a lot of great skills in investment banking, and I can say I also learned some cultural things that I would not tolerate in our own organization. And that's a fine balance, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love the opportunity that I got, and I trust that future generations that come along inside the Pape family will learn those same lessons and hopefully continue to build a better organization by taking the best they can from other places and, and trying to put up effective blocks from, from things they, they know don't work. Totally. Jordan, as I was starting to uh, kind of wrap up today's call, I, I, I thought I would let you know that my inner Oregonian is always proud when I'm in, in other markets and I see Pape trucks rolling around or Pape locations. You know, I was out fly fishing on the, uh, the Yakima the other day, and I think I drove past numerous Pape locations. And so uh, my inner Oregonian comes out because uh, just makes me proud to see a, a, an Oregon business that can go out into the, you know, the region and, and the West Coast and, and win. And so strong, strong Oregon businesses make for a strong Oregon. And as an Oregonian, that, uh, that makes me proud. So uh, stay on the gas and cheers to you and uh, to Pape. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate the time.